Most of us naturally understand that when someone says God is wise, that's different than saying God is a rock. One speaks formally about God, God is wise, and the other informally or metaphorically. God is not actually a rock. Rock stands for something else. But what about a less clear phrase, such as God is angry? Where do we categorize that? Well, Ryan Hurd from the Davenant Institute joins us for a provocative conversation about how God possesses zero wrath and why both God is angry and God is a rock operate as metaphors. This is about using language about God and how we can think precisely about what we know about God through that language. Ryan also shares how the incarnation amplifies our understanding of metaphor and draws us closer to the heart of God. And also, we've got a brand new theme song that you're listening to right now, courtesy of our friend, Daniel Vincent. Enjoy the episode. You're listening to That'll Preach. Got a great interview today lined up. We have Ryan Hurd back on the show again. Ryan is a systematic theologian whose expertise is in the doctrine of God, specifically the Trinity. He's an instructor at the Davenant Institute, and he's got a nice lecture series coming out that we'll put a link to in the show notes that uh, I was actually involved in some of the editing of editing of it. So I've, I've seen his work firsthand, and it's really, really good stuff. Really, really helpful stuff. Ryan, thank you for joining us again. Thanks, Brian. Uh, I'm really excited to have a conversation with you today. Well, we're talking about this a little bit. What I really appreciated about the topic of these lectures, which we'll get into, is uh, how surprisingly accessible it was. You know, when you talk about theology proper and the doctrine of God, you can kind of, it can sound a little intimidating, but I thought you explained it in a way that I felt like a normal lay guy like me. I'm like, I I can get some handles on this, actually. This Mm -hmm. isn't as uh, as intimidating as I, as I thought it was. But uh, you've got this series, and it's it's going to be called God Is. At least that seems to be the working title. And that's a very curious title. And I'm wondering what, what went behind titling this lecture series God Is. What is that uh, telling us about the topic of what you're trying to educate people on? Yeah, well, I'm... Uh truly thankful to hear that uh, somebody found it more or less accessible. Um, I'm going to uh, clip this and send it to folks if they accuse me of uh, the other not being accessible. But yeah, theology is um, a lot. Theology involves a lot of distinctions. It does involve a lot of technicality. But much of that technicality boils down to extremely simple principles that are fairly obvious, um, even does statements, and then being super consistent at applying and following those principles all the way through. And one of the goals in this lecture series that I had was to give you all of those basic principles throughout doctrine of God, specifically essence and attributes stuff. Uh, We got a little bit of Trinity at the end, but primarily essence and attributes and try to give you a whirlwind tour on how to do theology, and specifically how to do theology in a more scholastic or a Thomist specifically register, which is uh, really the thought behind the title, God is. Because in technical or scholastic theology, 
Um, we operate in terms of divine names. Names here is roughly speaking what we would say in English as predicates. Predicates like the dog is brown. Brown is a predicate that we are here affirming of the dog. Um, uh, you know, Miletus is not is is not wise. Wise is a predicate. We're now negating of the person Miletus, the great accuser, Socrates, things like this. Likewise, in theology, our predicates are taken from creatures. Uh, creatures and the created universe is, as it were, our whole resource for knowing and naming God from with us and among creatures. And all we do in the technicality of theology is take up these predicates, usurp them from creatures, and either affirm them or negate them of God, depending which is true, saying either God is such or God is not such. And depending upon what that predicate is, what that creaturely form is, again, we're going to either affirm it if that's true, negate it if that's true. And then make different kinds of affirmative statements because not everything in the created order is the same. Not everything in the created order, so to speak, has the same potential uh, for us to know God therein as in a mirror. And so there are certain predicates that we take up from creatures that we can affirm of God straightforwardly or without qualifications, like God is wise, God is good, and others of that sort. Um, others, however, are going to need some qualification uh, in some fashion. Perhaps you're going to be metaphorical, like God is rock, God is a lion, things like this. These are, again, created, predicated forms that we can affirm of God. Uh, but when we do so, we need to recognize this is a metaphor put for some other truth. God is rock is a metaphor for God's support or something like that. All along, though, we're simply taking up these predicates and saying God is or God is not. And it's that kind of simplicity and those some of those basic principles and others that are behind this course and why I titled it God Is, and uh, hoping that it will train people to think about theology in these types of ways. What strikes me about those illustrations that you give is how people talk this way. I mean, this is actually a very practical kind of thing. If you're going in Bible study, and you're reading through, and is there a difference when you say God is a lion versus God is good or God is wise? And I think we intuitively know that they're not saying the same things. They're saying true things about God, but we think that the way in which they're saying true things is different. I think even intuitively we have that, and you're giving language to those intuitions and parsing them out. Is that a yeah. fair assessment? I, I think absolutely. It's really just refining and sharpening those basic intuitions that any fairly healthy, normal thinking person has implanted uh, in them by virtue of reading Holy Scripture or being raised in the church or something like that. Um, I like to compare Thomas's theology to grandma's theology, hmm. just a little bit sharper and clearer. And yeah, everybody understands that there is an important difference between saying God loves versus saying God is a tree. Um, one is metaphorical and one is proper. And those differences, um, we put names to them, like I just have proper versus metaphorical. 
but we really trim down to exactly what that means and therefore exactly what the kind of difference we're talking about here in terms of gestures uh, and basic intuitions that everybody has. We sharpen those exactly, and then we deploy them throughout theology. For example, there are many different kinds of metaphor, uh, things like this. And as we deploy them throughout theology, we also develop strategies to, so to speak, categorize or class various names. Because some names of God, particularly those found in Holy Scripture, our intuitions lead us very well, very truly, and everyone can get by. Nobody needs a technical degree in theology to know God is rock, is a metaphor, and God is love, is not. Um, but there's a lot of names that we say that are not so clear and that maybe our intuitions are not so strong about or even perhaps wrongheaded about. And so we want to make sure to categorize or class those names in the right uh, buckets, so to speak. A classic example here and also the example that I typically use is the predicate anger or wrath, something like this. Um, where does it fall on the scale of God is love to God is a tree? Well, if you're somebody of good sense, you're probably not going to want to put it all the way over identically to God is love. You're going to feel there's some tension here. Maybe you have some of the basic insights, like Luther said, that um, the works of God's wrath are his alien works. They're not in accords with his nature whereas the works of love and mercy are right in line with who God is. So you have some of those basic intentions or uh, uh, intuitions. And so, you know, eh, it's not going to go exactly as much as we say God is love. Very few, however, are going to know that in the technicality of theology, saying God is angry is identical to saying God is a tree just with different predicates. And so, it, in fact, is the case that God is angry is purely metaphorical, and that surprises a lot of people, which is understandable. But in the technicality of theology, we make those determinations. We make those classifications of all the different names that we can. We sharpen up the different categories of positive names that we can do. We deploy negative names as underlings and supports and you know, link together negative and positive theology. We do all of this, but at the end of the day, it really is just to do plain old vanilla, vanilla grandma theology with a bit more precision. What's at stake if we lack that precision, though? I mean, perhaps not every you know grandma has to know all these things, but there's a there's an importance to why you're dedicating so much time and effort into these specific categorizations and and the precision, the sharpening, as you say. What, what would you say is at stake? There's a lot at stake. Um, I mean, we can be grandiose and say the truth is at stake, and and that's 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 the case. Um, but also understanding somewhat who God is, what God is, is is likewise at stake. And because all of our knowledge of God in this life is taken up from with us and among creatures, uh, therefore creatures are our resource uh, and our alone resource for understanding God. And therefore, insofar as we're askew on how these various predicates, various kinds of predicates bear on contributing to our positive knowledge of who God is, insofar as we're askew, well, 
therefore, ipso facto, we're askew on our actual understanding of God. And as people know, when your knowledge of God is off, everything is amok. Knowledge of God is not sufficient. We also have to have the proper will or uh, volitional bearing towards God, the affections hmm. uh, in line with the truth as well. But with that said, and all the additional, um, you know, kind of head, heart, and hands that we need, if you have the head, if you have the knowledge of God that's askew, then everything else uh, follows awry. And therefore, there's a lot at stake. Um, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of it that we can get by on without so much technicality. It just is in terms of whether our understanding is more or less high resolution, um, as I like to say. So if you value uh, increasing your resolution, your, your the degree of your resolution, your understanding of God, um, then you're going to have to do some technical theology. And of course, it's very valuable. It's not valuable for everything. It's good for what it's good for. But that is what it's what's at stake. And that is what you get when you engage uh, theology at a bit more technical of a level um, rather than um, still operating in a less technical mode. It's a helpful way to, to, to put it. I'm, I'm thinking even now, just even thinking about the, the toolbox, so to speak, that we have is the created order. And yet mm -hmm. none of those things that we pull out of the created order can fully encompass what we're talking about when we talk about God. And yet we don't want to be completely agnostic and say that none of the things in the toolbox can give us any kind of understanding of God at all. And that tension, right. I think I've always actually felt that tension, but I, it's nice to know that people have thought about it through history and that it's actually a, a, a very, uh, well attested, well thought through kind of thing that, that these great, you know, theologians of the past have, have, have struggled with. Um, mm. you mentioned, you're using a lot of using a lot of terminology to clarify and sharpen what we're talking about. You mentioned proper and metaphorical, and I think mm -hmm. metaphorical, sort of in just layman speak, it just sounds like not real. But that doesn't seem like what you're saying. You're, you're meaning in a more qualified sense. So maybe that first building block, when we talk about using creaturely words, you know, words of, of creation and and all those things that are dependent upon God to describe God. There's ways that you can properly describe him and then metaphorically, or I guess that would that be an improper description of him? Mm -hmm. How do you help us distinguish those two types of things? Yeah, that's a real problem. Um, the issue of derealizing or, um, you know, the further you go in theology, the less it, the less, the less close you are to home. Hmm. Kind of by definition, uh, you and I live on planet Earth. We're material creatures. We're made from dust. Um, if we're going to climb up Mount Everest and start floating or, or, or uh, Mount Sinai, excuse me, <laughs> and start floating up there with Moses in the cloud of unknowing and uh, try to climb up into into God, uh, we're going to be leaving our homeland, leaving our dust behind. Uh, and that feeling uh, is never going to go away. It is a feeling in a certain mode, grounded in fact, um, because our knowledge is taken from sense and it's objects that are uh, that our knowledge and knowing faculties are good for are knowing those objects which fall under sense, rocks, trees, and so on, the material objects of our world. 
And therefore, um, our impression is that angels are very ghostly and ephemeral, because if you cut out a body, that's what you get. And that feeling is ubiquitous. Even in our culture, we see, uh, you know, portrayed in film or whatever, you have the mist come in and, and, then, and then, you know, the gods are coming. Well, that's simply because of our knowledge uh, is taken from sense and our knowing faculties are targeted or tailored uh, to no objects that fall under sense uh, that are material, and God is not one of those objects. And so in a certain mode, that feeling is just inherent to the nature of theology by virtue of our finitude, our materiality, and also the nature of the subject under inquiry, namely God himself. Uh, and it's important to note that because that feeling is endemic or inherent, whether we're doing so-called proper affirmations or metaphorical ones. So it's there regardless. Um, but it is an a special issue of trying to chew our feelings or ignore our feelings when we get to the metaphorical names. Because metaphorical names, by definition, are those which are put for something entirely other. That's the definition of metaphor, putting something for another and an entire other. So uh, using metaphor here in the technical sense that we deploy it in logic or philosophy or theology, not how people think of metaphor usually today in their common speech uh, or what they would learn in lit studies or something like that. Most people think of metaphor, and this is a uh, truly extraordinary problem as people come into theology, is something I face continually with my students. They come into theology uh, thinking metaphor means something that when we say, uh, again, to use God is angry as an illustration because it's often helpful, when we say God is angry, and we make the claim in theology that this is metaphorical, we just dig down deeper into the predicate anger and, you know, scoop some of the bad stuff off, some of the stuff that's not relevant. But at the bottom, at the core, uh, there's something something still in the predicate that we're retaining. And that's what it means to, to do a metaphor. It's like part of it is irrelevant data, part of it is relevant, and that's what we mean. Well, that may be a good metaphor, uh, a good definition of metaphor in everyday life. It may be a good definition of metaphor in lit studies. I don't really know. I don't do lit studies, but it is not what is meant in logic, philosophy, theology, and so on. Metaphor puts one for something entirely other, entirely other. And for that reason, by definition, we scratch that one that was put for the other, and we only retain the entirely other that the one was put for. So to use a very clear and simple illustration, God is rock is a metaphor, means it was put for another. Rock here was put for supports. There's no conceptual overlap between these two predicates, rock and supports. And in the technicality of theology, to safeguard ourselves from screwing up, we have to scratch rock entirely and not look down deeper, scoop into rock, try to find what at the bottom is the core point being said here by this metaphor. No, 
It's not what we mean. You, you, you scratch rock entirely. You say, God is not a rock at all. Rather, we said he was a rock as a metaphor for God supports. Rock is metaphor for supports. Again, super basic intuitions. Everyone kind of knows that. So much so that when you start talking in those terms of zeroing out the predicate rock, scratching it out, they look at you really weird and they say, that doesn't make any sense. I have no idea why you would uh, jump up and down and make a big deal of that. Um, why do they do that? Well, because they're doing it intuitively. Sure. <laughs> they're, never, they're never adverting to rock and thinking of God in rock terms. They're just because they're, they're, they're normal functioning people looking at the statement, God is a rock and hearing God supports or something similar to that. Um, you know, God has a hand is a metaphor for God is strong and nobody has to go through the rigmarole of zeroing out the predicate because they never thought that the predicate hand fell into God in the first place. Okay. Well, there's a lot of metaphorical predicates that aren't so clear. And those metaphorical predicates, we have to jump up and down a little bit on and harp on a little bit in the technicality of theology and ensure that we don't screw it up. And rather than hear what God wants us to hear, namely what it was put for, rather be ruled by our senses, our imagination, and look at what was said and not apprehend what was intended. And for that reason, we have to zero out these predicates. And when we do so, it's a very long answer to your initial question. I apologize. But when we zero out those metaphorical predicates, we're pulling away from their content by definition. And that feels like we're derealizing God. So case in point, again, is always helpful. God is angry. First thing we say in theology, God has zero anger. Oh my goodness. It must mean that this means nothing at all, or this is irrelevant or something like that. People get very concerned. No, God is angry means, for example, God punishes or God is just or something like that. And most people more or less actually get there in their thoughts. But sometimes we have to make sure we haven't kept any of the initial predicate uh, along the way. And so again, we zero out. But when we zero out, we're pulling away and we feel like we're derealizing. De Whereas in fact, we're adverting to the very real and solid truth. God is just, God punishes, something like that. And that's where the solidity is found. So there's instability or shakiness or, you know, areas where you don't want to trust your feelings or your senses or your imagination as we go through in the technicality of theology and, and make negative judgments. Hold it in abeyance. Let the metaphor uh, bring you to the place of knowledge, bring you to the place of truth, which is the other predicate it was being put for. And that's where your solidity lies. Um, but at the end of the day, you can explain that over and over and over to people. And the feelings are just never going to go away. Once more, 
The reason for that is because we're material creatures and God is beyond our thoughts. So those feelings are always going to be there. It's just going to be a question of whether you know what's going on and when you, whether you're willing to have that higher pain tolerance of following intellectual judgments and scientific demonstrations and so on to lead you into truth or whether you're going to trust your feelings and have your senses lie to you as the fathers often emphasize in these contexts. So with the example of God is a rock, we intuitively, we don't think that there's 98% we dissipate and then 2% rockness that is true of God. We right. clearly know that that's standing in for right. a more substantial truth that God supports. Right. And the trick though is with, the difficult thing is with anger, it's not as clear right. because we could imagine, okay, let's take away 75% of what we think anger is. And the last 25% is God. And you're saying, no, it's the None same thing. Yeah. But what distinguishes, why is just his justice mm -hmm. more solid than his anger? Well, um, I think maybe even we would want to work at the, the question as phrase, which, you know, is sure. a fine question. Yeah. It's, a, it's a, a natural question. But what we would want to say is it's not so much that God's justice is more solid than God's anger. That's that's operating some misunderstanding that we would want to fix. It's more that creaturely anger versus creaturely justice are less and more similar to something in God, respectively. OK. And there are a set of predicates, set of creaturely predicates that we take up and we say of God through affirmative judgment. These are called the simple perfections, things like God is good, God is wise, and so on. And these are the ones that are really similar to something in God. And therefore, so to speak, more solid or the ones we don't mess with as to their predicate content. We do mm -hmm. mess with their mode of having and various things, but that's some more advanced stuff in theology. Whereas in the case of other creaturely predicates like our passions, which we likewise usurp from creatures and affirm of God, we do have to mess with that predicate content. And it's uh, that zeroing out, you use the, the, the example of percentages. Yes, it's it's zero percent, not oh, only 25 percent of these predicates falls into God. No, it's zero percent. And they're put for other judgments that we make whose predicates are correspondingly zero percent removed from god so god is good all the time all the time god is good nothing of the predicate goodness is removed from god a hundred percent of the predicate is retained and therefore we take certain predicates and we put it metaphorically for those retained predicates and that's just how we go in theology so the difference would be that in things like goodness or God is love, mm -hmm. um, when we look at a human example of that, we go, God is all of that exactly. and, and more, perhaps. All together similar to what God is. Right. Absolutely. Whereas if you see somebody being angry at someone, you wouldn't want to, I don't know if this is, in my mind, I'm thinking mac maximize that as if right. God was all of that anger Just plus more. more. Right. Or that's or fascinating. All of that, all of that without the bodily accoutrement. Yeah. That's that's often that's that's the typical Reformed Orthodox position is that God is that anger just without the bodily uh 
you know, the blood swirling around the heart is often how it's put because of Aristotle and various things. It's like, no, none of that, but rather the, the justice part, which, which is because humans are, are, are unity of, of form and matter, which is in, in good cases of anger, so to speak, is present in the human person, which is one of the reasons why folks get confused. That part, yes, we say of God affirmatively and properly, but the lower part, which we call anger, we do not. And it's that difference, which is which is re-registered or just distributed into our theology proper. So is it because anger is in its totality a passion, whereas love is not in its totality, or rather love is conceptualized as not a passion. I, I can see even now as I'm talking about it, how hard it is to get out of this kind of creaturely yeah. mindset with it. Yeah. But, so love with us among creatures is a an act of immaterial will or immaterial, um, you know, desiring faculty. Um, and therefore, both according, we, this some technical terminology here, but both according to its genus and according to its species, it's affirmed of God, whereas our creaturely passions, of which anger is, is, is one example, a very high potent example, neither according to their genus nor according to their specific difference or set of God. What is the specific difference of anger? Well, that's a bit of a technical question, but anger is the desire for roughly speaking, very roughly speaking, self-vindication on, on account of harm that one has experienced well guess mm. what god does not ever want to self-indicate it's not in his nature uh and for that reason among others anger not only according to its genus as as like a bodily state of affairs is not found in god but also according to that specific difference, which arises, again, technicality of theology, I apologize here, specific difference in case of operations or passions is taken from the proper object. You can look at SCG1C89 for this. Um, but yeah, it's removed as a whole, as a whole. And that's that's the key takeaway here. Um, and there are there are other passions that are that are like that as well. So it's kind of like you were saying, sort of the Reformed Orthodox position is that when you negate anger, you're negating the physical manifestations, but there's this invisible remainder mm -hmm. of self-vindication. And you're saying that even that invisible remainder yeah. cannot be predicated of God, spoken of God. Now, how Correct. do you, so self-vindicate, because I often hear that though, that God is self-vindicating in that yes. you know he, he's vindicating his just, well, maybe that's the thing though. Maybe the, the, the way in which that what he's doing is not actually self-vindication. Vindicating, this is true. Self-vindicating is <clears throat> another metaphor. Interesting. A very important metaphor. And oftentimes, you know, even God will make a big deal of this in Holy Scripture. He'll say, FYI, I'm doing this not for your sake, but for the right. sake of my name and things like this. Okay. Very important moments. Uh, obviously to pay attention to, but still metaphors. How do we know they're metaphors? Well, we have to prove it. In fact, we have to demonstrate it. And that takes a very, very long time. But at least uh, for now on hypothesis, if it were a metaphor, uh, which it is, therefore no anger. 
you mentioned the the reformed orthodox position i always get dinged for this people are going to email me and and you know have all sorts of twitter paintings online uh, you know yes i understand there is a lot of variety and eclecticism among the reformed orthodox trust me i read them but broadly speaking this is a very very common position you find among reformed orthodox usually and as a good rule of thumb um they're concerned rightly to negate only the bodily portion only the genus of passions uh and they're often either just being silent on or being sloppy about or just not handling for whatever reason and that's fine or erring about the question of the second part the specific difference that higher invisible part that you mentioned um and what happens as a result of those various infelicities for lack of better terms is that overall the reform position we can speak that way and again people are just going to ding me for this but the reform position slants towards putting anger somehow in god eminently in god and that is what happens as the tradition moves forward so a lot of discussion a lot of technicality here um but that would be that would be just a little bit of a gesture to it now on a pastoral level i mean i actually this this is very intriguing let's say you you have to preach on a text where god is saying that he's angry you know or i i swore my wrath they will not enter my rest things like that yep. um how should that affect the way that that's articulated? Because I don't think everyone has to be a systematic theologian. And you're even saying there's the grandma faith in which you no. can say that God is angry at sin on the grandma straight level, like the straight street level kind of way. Um, but is there a, a way in which the things that you're talking about should inform how we nuance that? Does that make sense? If you're preaching on a text about anger, what are some things to keep in mind that you think would be helpful? Well, that's a very that's a very important question. It's more of a prudential question, which of course theology might inform to some degree, but prudential questions by definition are going to be informed by other and once again extremely important concerns. Um, you know, your question is, can I be provocative? Am I allowed to be provocative? Do it. This is the question, what... the question is: what is Jonathan Edwards allowed to preach his famous sermon? Yes or no? Yeah. That's the question, right? That's, yeah, that, that's that, that's a good uh, illustration in my mind. You know, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Yes, the, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, for good reason. Um, it depends, right? It depends. Um, metaphor, by definition, is something that is uh, the 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 one and the another. So when when we talk about metaphor, we we talk about three things in the technicality of theology. We talk about the one, we talk about the other, and then we talk about the path from the one to the other, because metaphor is one put for another. So the one, the other, and we really should devise a name for these, but, and then the path between them. So God is the rock, rock is the one, supports is the other, and the pathway between them is, broadly speaking, what we call analogy of proportionality. So the one, the rock bit, in terms of metaphor, is always something material. And it's cited or given to people materially because guess what? People are only moved by things that are close to home and things that they feel. Hmm. For this reason, God has kindly condescended to us to speak in the language of men. 
and to tell us things that catch our attention and move us. Because in the technicality of theology, Mr. Scholastic coming along and saying, God is angry. Point one, God has zero wrath, actually. Point two, it only means God punishes and is just blah, blah, blah. And point three, therefore repent. You know, this is a very bad sermon. It doesn't have any traction by definition. And that's exactly right. So Holy Scripture is not intended to be scholasticism, and scholasticism is not intended to preach. Am I allowed to say that? No, that's yeah. that's great. Not a lot. It's not intended to preach. With that said, though, we the question of whether you can preach sinners in the hands of an angry God really rises and falls, you know, prudential questions aside, on whether you have taken the one and actually moved people to the other that it was put for. Are you following the lines of the divine intention in starting from ground zero, punching you in the face to get your attention so that you, your gaze is turned to a very important truth or very important reality, such as the seriousness of sin, the need for a savior, the need to repent, things like that. Yeah, the certainty of punishment, all these things. If you're accomplishing that and you're doing so aptly and you're not injecting errors, then yes, this is exactly why we were given these metaphors to start with so that us normal people would be moved in the ways that we need to be moved. We need to have God move and shake us. And so God has used these names. He has Taken on, Augustine says, even the most revolting things of human of humankind, um, not even just humankind. God is compared and said to be a worm in Holy Scripture. All these different disgusting things that God so kindly uses so that he moves and shakes us where he wants. And the question of whether we're doing so rightly, preaching so rightly, is whether we're following those lines and, and, and at the end of the day, on the whole, the gesture of our preaching, are we bringing people to conclude God punishes, God is just, things like this and need to repent? Or, or, or are we promoting in people's minds the image of an angry God? Hmm. And depending on whether you're doing that, again, with all the prudential questions and over the long haul, there's your answer for whether for whether uh you know you're you're preaching this well or not at least from my perspective and i think i can say from the perspective of the tradition so nobody nobody well hopefully nobody who is well formed by this scholastics emphasis on the well formed is going to get up on sunday morning and read you know various texts handling divine anger and most likely make any mention of the FYI, God has zero wrath. It's not the time, not the time. And probably imprudential words, probably imprudential words. There are things that we have to say in the classroom that are not prudential to say outside the classroom. And, um, you know, anyway, but no, you're going to say this means God certainly punishes period. 
Um, and that is how the fathers use these metaphors. Um, that issue of certainty, there are, there are, there are kind of two, there are kind of two arenas that, so we ask the question, God uses this metaphor. He puts one and he intends the other. Great. You know, the important question is, what is the another that this one was put for? So God is a rock, put for God supports. God is angry, put for God punishes. Great question. Another question. Why on earth would God ever, ever say something of himself like this? That's nuts. Hmm. In point of fact, the church fathers make a big deal about this. They call it the scandalon of the text. The fact that these are horrific things that God has said, even devilish things that God has said of himself. Why on earth would he do that? Well, two general categories of responses. One is to do with our intellect. One is to do with our will. As to our intellect, the purpose of God speaking this way at all is so we can have certainty about another truth. So God is angry, is put for God punishes, but it was a metaphor used so that we would know God certainly, certainly, the emphasis there, it's uncertainty. That's why the metaphor was used. Or number two, to use with reference to our will, because we're moved, because we're material creatures, to act, um, to decide, to choose, to believe, all these different things by way of these metaphors. So, yeah, uh, use, use, use for our repentance is often how they put it in the tradition, or used for our certainty about, about a certain truth. That's and, helpful. Uh, yeah. You know, even just thinking about it, if somebody is committing adultery, you can say God is angry with that mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, he's just and he will punish that, you know, if you, if you don't repent. But then you can imagine somebody who maybe grew up an abusive father and you would say God has zero yeah. wrath. He is not like that at all. He's not like take your dad and remove you know, all the, the bad kind of wrath he had and remain this little anger. Face. Yeah. yeah, right. And and I think that does have a very on the ground vision yeah. of do you on a very basic level, on the grandma faith level, do you look yeah. at God as this frowning, just angry, furious at you, oh. like kind of hate you kind of person? Yeah. Whereas you would also there's a guard against thinking that God is just, you know, airy yeah. fairy, doesn't care at all. And the view of justice does seem to strike mm -hmm. more at what is going on. But I, I do think that there is, when people say God is just, what they really mean is God is angry. Like what they really mean is God is like. And vice versa. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so when actually there's, there's a really important distinction between those terms. And then one actually leads to the other, as you were saying, and trying to help them kind of traverse that terrain, so to speak, and to say mm -hmm. that. There's, you know, what you're, what the metaphor is trying to do is to get you to this thing, right? And uh, I think there are a lot of applications to that. Um, what, how do we, how does the incarnation fit into this? Because here you have in Jesus, he, he is expressing anger and emotion and all these types mm -hmm. of things. Does the incarnation have a ripple effect on how this is articulated? Does it 
put an asterisk there? Does it affect it at all? How do we kind of understand the God man himself expressing emotions and anger and all these types of things? Yeah. Um, it doesn't put asterisks. Um, it doesn't change or revise or christen, uh, pun intended, our doctrine of God. Um, of course, there are things added that we also say of God by virtue of Christ, um, one of which is the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, um, others of which are given the certain effects uh, involved with Christ. Uh, you know, there are going to be new things that we say of God by virtue of those effects. Yes, is true. But specifically your question, um, it doesn't it doesn't change the content, but we might say it changes the force or it brings the metaphor all the way to the down to the ground. So you might think of it in this terms. Christ and the emotions that he exhibits, the very the very complex emotions that he exhibits, um, are all those metaphors incarnate. Interesting. Okay. And that it's doing the same thing as all the, the the metaphors were doing all along, but just with more potency and power by virtue of the fact that it's more visible more meaningful, more human. Um, so the, the the thing that always comes to my mind, which is uh, probably the most probably the most precious um, verse in all of Holy Scripture to me is um, Jesus wept, uh, which you know all, all of us knew from the time we were children is the shortest verse in the, in the English Bible. And sometimes I wonder if God has a sense of humor. Uh, and in you know this this kind of chance, yeah, thing, because it's not the shortest verse in the Greek or the Hebrew Bible, but regardless, shortest verse in the English Bible. Uh, what do we see here? Well, we see God cry. Why? Why is this important? Well, in the face of profound suffering, some metaphors uh, just don't have teeth, and. When you are so overwhelmed by pain and suffering, there are only a very few things that can actually get through to you as really true. And they're true before and behind your pain, in your pain, after your pain, yes. But are they true for you? Do you cognize them as true? Do you shape your life by them as true, etc.? Um, the fact that in the tears of Christ, we see the metaphor of the heart of God in the most potent, powerful way, in such simplicity, such beauty, where what we say is, if God were a man, this is what he would do. Wow. Because the God-man, this is what he has done. You know, sometimes people really really struggle with okay so we zero out predicates we say things are metaphors blah 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 again it's like a derealizing issue no it, it just dials up just dials up on the emotional life if we can speak of that of god so the fact that god doesn't have passions or emotions doesn't mean that he's heartless 
Rather, it means that he has more heart because his heart, his heartliness isn't distributed in all these weird little bodily powers and hormones and stuff like that. That's not how it works. It's pure spiritual love. And this is just love as it goes through a body, love as it goes through um, the experience of your um, sensory organs and resonating with pain that you're observing in another. Christ cries because it's human to cry at the suffering of friends, the suffering of beloved ones. But God specifically willed Christ to cry and Christ himself willed specifically to cry so that it would be revealed to us that God only does one thing at our pain, and that is he cries, i.e. he's motivated much more than we could ever imagine or even be to help and save us. He has everything um, that comes about by virtue of experiencing in ourselves the passions of others, this co-passioning, this co-suffering, which emerges from us in tears, feelings of gut-wrenchedness and all that. It's not so much those feelings that are important as much as what it causes us to do and to act and to engage and work in the world, namely to somehow, at the risk of life and limb, relieve the suffering of our friends. That's what passions are good for. That's why human persons have them is that so that you are made to act. Passions are principles of action. Well, God has all, all the tendency to act and more so, which is why God cries. So yes, it is metaphor, so to speak, incarnate, teaching us if we ever had any doubt about how God felt at our pain, just look at the tears of Christ. You'll know the answer. It's the only answer. And even though it's a metaphorical answer, it's real and true and solid, and it's attesting to something that is real and true and solid, even more than we could possibly imagine. How would you encourage, you know, lay men and women who are interested in this? How do they get started on on this journey of of of, of learning these kind of uh, this kind of historical? Uh, way of thinking about theology, what's a good way to start? Besides getting your lecture series, which would be a great way to start, but also what are some bite-sized ways to start uh, getting into Aquinas or getting into classic theism or all these types of things? It's a very hard question and not one that I've really figured out much less the whole, even a good answer to. Well, how did you get into it? I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, maybe as, as we're nearing the end, it's, it's a, it, this is kind of a, a labor of love for you. And I'm curious what kind of drew you into this world. Yeah, well, um, uh, God's providence, um, you know, a certain, certain gift sets, certain proclivities, yes, various circumstances as well. Um, I can't say that it was really anything positively decided by myself. Um, for a lot of people it is, but 
just kind of happened. I suppose I read the right books or the right books were given to me. Um, yeah, I, but going back to your question, it, it's a, it's a really hard question because the fact of the matter is, is, um, it does take a ton of early work, uh, to really start to see any, any real payoff. And has to be said honestly that there's a lot of misleading work much of which is going to be the work that folks first stumble across when they start going to google and i say that genuinely humbly but i just try and be honest like people ask me this question all the time i get asked this question once a week uh i'm very honored to be asked the question but I have felt more and more the need to be really honest and real and realist with folks that a lot of people, it's not what they're supposed to do. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but if it is, it's going to take a lot. It's going to take a lot of work and the gains are going to be small at first. They're cumulative in the long run, but for example, just use myself, I've been working on these kinds of things for seven, eight years, full-time, 100% professionally. Um, most people, it would be bad to do that. Um, but with all those kind of qualifications aside, hopefully not to discourage folks too much, you know, yeah, just read, read, read the old books, um, pray to God. Um Following someone like Thomas is helpful. Devoting yourself to one teacher is important. So for me, that was that that was Thomas. It will always be Thomas the rest of my life. Um, Thomas. My wife knows that Thomas competes with her for my affections. And she loves that about me, thankfully. <laughs> Otherwise, um, but yeah, Thomas is everything to me. Because Thomas showed me God. And without him, I would be nothing. So devoting yourself to one teacher who is great and worthy of your devotion uh, is important rather than the kind of schizophrenic, eclectic, there's truth in everything. And therefore, just read all the different books, all the different perspectives. No, that is that is. That is the definition of stupidity. Yes, it's the case that there are truth in many places, but that is not the means for learning. The means for learning is finding somebody who is gloriously a teacher and doing everything they say to do. Gain what you can, God willing, outgrowing them perhaps, and going to the next teacher. So devote yourself to one Someone like Thomas is very helpful, but it's an extremely steep and difficult learning curve. So, yeah, other teachers, you know, Augustine. Um, Thomas, in, in, my, in many ways, is a much better teacher than Augustine because Augustine is too flowery. Um, but nonetheless, many people have had profound, have been profoundly influenced, to say the least, Thomas himself by, by Augustine. But you know, it depends on depends on your brain. Like like maybe maybe Thomas just doesn't do it for you, and that's fine. 
So yeah, devote yourself to one, read old books, pray a lot, be quiet a lot. And um, yeah, follow the old paths. But beyond those things, I don't really have much much of an answer, unfortunately. I'm still working on it. Well, I, I, you were mentioning how Thomas showed you God. I, I'm just curious, you know, was it that the way in which he spoke about these things, it it elevated your mind in a particular way or what was that experience like when you were the, for, for, of Thomas for you? I'm just curious about that. It's a very interesting statement. When you know something, which takes much work, that truth is irreplaceable about God, what is the truth about God? Very, or lots of people don't ever occupy themselves at the level of having truths about God. They just work with imaginations, brain states, feelings, all which are good and important and valuable as far as they are. Um, it takes a ton of work to make one judgment about God and have its truth and have its reason. Um, my dissertation, my whole dissertation is one thing. Say God is merciful. That's it. And it takes a very, very long time. But when you have that truth, it is just pure light. And Thomas was able to give me many truths the easy way initially and then the demanding path of knowing them according to their reasons and being able to prove them and, and such but i never had any truths before i just had images in my mind um yeah so that's what i would say you just have light in your mind and it's difficult to articulate. I'm sure philosophers who understand the workings of human intelligence better than I could could do so. But that's my experience. And that's been the testimony of most people who have studied Thomas for some length of time, is that he just gives you truth, just gives you pure light. And that light is real and solid, corresponding to God himself, although not being God himself. But in that medium, you see God's reflection as in a mirror. And yeah, then you're just kind of content to wait and go through life until we see God face to face. So, but yeah, that's been my experience with Thomas. It's a fitting way to, to kind of bring this full circle. Ryan, thank you so much. I appreciate you spending the time. I know you're a busy man. And I will put a link to order your lecture series from David Institute, put a link to uh, some of your other YouTube works, I think, be helpful for people to check them out. If you're interested in his lectures and the things that he's working on, we'll have resources there. But uh, again, Ryan, thank you for coming on again. Really enjoyed the time. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to support our work, consider partnering with us on Patreon. You can also visit our website, Instagram, and YouTube channel in the show notes. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. And we'll see you guys next week.